Chapter 19, Part 1 of The Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 19, Part 1 The Uxbridge Road. At a steady gait, now and again checked in deference to the street traffic, Brentwick's motor-car rolled, with resonant humming of the engine, down the Cromwell Road, swerved into Warwick Road, and swung northward through Kensington to Shepherd's Bush. Behind it, Calendar's car clung as if towed by an invisible cable, never gaining, never losing, mutely testifying to the adventurer's unrelenting, grim determination to leave them no instant's freedom from surveillance, to keep forever at their shoulders, watching his chance, biding his time with sinister patience until the moment when, wearied, their vigilance should relax. To some extent, he reckoned without his motor-car, as long as they travelled within the metropolitan limits, constrained to observe a decorous pace in view of the prejudices of the county council, it was a matter of no difficulty whatever to maintain his distance. But once they had won through Shepherd's Bush, and, paced by huge double-decked trolley trams, were flying through Hammersmith on the Uxbridge Road, once they had run through Acton, and knew beyond dispute that now they were without the city boundaries, then the complexion of the business was suddenly changed. Not too soon for honest sport. Calendar was to have, Kirkwood would have said in lurid American idiom, a run for his money. The scattered lights of Southall were winking out behind them before Brentwick chose to give the word to the mechanician. Quietly, the latter threw in the clutch for the third speed, and the fourth. The car leaped forward like a startled racehorse. The motor lilted merrily into its deep-throated song of the open road, its contented, silken humming passing into a sonorous and sustained purr. Kirkwood and the girl were first jarred violently forward, then thrown together. She caught his arm to steady herself. It seemed the most natural thing imaginable that he should take her hand and pass it beneath his arm, holding her so, his fingers closed above her own. Before they had recovered, or had time to catch their breath, a mile of Middlesex had dropped to the rear. Not quite so far had they distanced Calendar's trailing nemesis of the four glaring eyes, the pursuers put forth a gallant effort to hold their place. At intervals during the first few minutes a heavy roaring and crashing could be heard behind them. Gradually it subsided, dying on the wings of the free-rushing wind that buffeted their faces as mile after mile was reeled off and the wide, darkling English countryside opened out before them, sweet and wonderful. Once Kirkwood looked back, in the winking of an eye he saw four faded disks of light, pallid with despair top a distant rise and glide down into darkness when he turned dorothy was interrogating him with eyes whose melting shadowed loveliness revealed to him in the light of the far still stars seemed to incite him to that madness which he had bade himself resist with all his strength he shook his head as if to say they cannot catch us his hour was not yet 
time enough to think of love and marriage as if he were capable of consecutive thought on any other subject, time enough to think of them when he had gone back to his place, or rather when he should have found it, in the ranks of breadwinners, and so have proved his right to mortal happiness. Time enough then to lay whatever he might have to offer at her feet. Now he could conceive of no baser treachery to his soul's desire than to advantage himself of her gratitude. Resolutely he turned his face forward, striving with all his will and might to forget the temptation of her lips, weary as they were and petulant with waiting, and so sat rigid in his time of trial, clinging with what strength he could to the standards of his honor, and trying to lose his dream in dreaming of the bitter struggle that seemed likely to be his future portion. Perhaps she guessed a little of the fortunes of the battle that was being waged within him. Perhaps not. Whatever the trend of her thoughts, she did not draw away from him. Perhaps the breath of night, fresh and clean and fragrant with the odor of the fields and hedges, sweeping into her face with velvety caress, rendered her drowsy. Presently the silken lashes drooped, fluttering upon her cheeks. The tired and happy smile hovered above her lips. In something less than half an hour of this wild driving, Kirkwood roused out of his reverie sufficiently to become sensible that the speed was slackening. Incoherent snatches of sentences, fragments of words and phrases spoken by Brentwick and the mechanician, were flung back past his ears by the rushing wind. Shielding his eyes, he could see dimly that the mechanician was tinkering, apparently, with the driving gear. Then, their pace continuing steadily to abate, he heard Brentwick fling at the man a sharp-toned and querulously impatient question. What was the trouble? His reply came in a single word, not distinguishable. The girl sat up, opening her eyes, disengaging her arm. Kirkwood bent forward and touched Brentwick on the shoulder. The latter turned to him, a face lined with deep concern. Trouble! he announced superfluously. I fear we have blundered. What is it? asked Dorothy in a troubled voice. Petro seems to be running low. Charles here, he referred to the mechanician, says the tank must be leaking. We'll go on as best we can and try to find an inn. Fortunately, most of the inns nowadays keep supplies of petrol for just such emergencies. Are we? Do you think? Oh, no, not a bit of danger of that, returned Brentwick hastily. They'll not catch up with us this night. That is a very inferior car they have. So, Charles says, at least nothing to compare with this. If I'm not in error, there's the crown and mitre just ahead. We'll make it, fill our tanks, and be off again before they can make up half their loss. Dorothy looked anxiously to Kirkwood, her lips forming an unuttered query, what did he think? Don't worry, we'll have no trouble, he assured her stoutly. The chauffeur knows, undoubtedly. Nonetheless, he was moved to stand up in the tonneau, conscious of the presence of the traveling bag, snug between his feet, as well as the weight of Calendar's revolver in his pocket, while he stared back along the road. There was nothing to be seen of their persecutors. The car continued to crawl. Five minutes dragged out tediously. Gradually, they drew abreast a tavern standing back a distance from the road, 
embowered in a grove of trees between whose anxious boles the taproom windows shone enticingly, aglow with comfortable light. A creaking signboard, much worn by weather and age, swinging from a roadside post, confirming the accuracy of Brentwick's surmise, announcing that here stood the Crown and Mitre, house of entertainment for man and beast. Sluggishly, the car rolled up before it and came to a dead and silent halt. Charles, the mechanician, jumping out, ran hastily up the path towards the inn. In the car, Brentwick turned again, his eyes curiously bright in the starlight, his forehead quaintly furrowed, his voice apologetic. It may take a few minutes, he said undecidedly, plainly endeavoring to cover up his own dark doubts. My dear, to the girl, if I have brought trouble upon you in this wise, I shall never earn my own forgiveness. Kirkwood stood up again, watchful, attentive to the sounds of night, but the voice of the pursuing motor-car was not of their company. "'I hear nothing,' he announced. "'You will forgive me, won't you, my dear, for causing you these few moments of needless anxiety,' pleaded the old gentleman, his tone tremulous. "'As if you could be blamed,' protested the girl. "'You mustn't think of it that way. Fancy, what should we have done without you?' "'I'm afraid I have been very clumsy,' sighed Brentwick. "'Clumsy and impulsive. "'Kirkwood, do you hear anything?' "'Not yet, sir. "'Perhaps,' suggested Brentwick, a little later, "'perhaps we had better alight and go up to the inn. "'It would be more cosy there, "'especially if the petrol proves hard to obtain "'and we have long to wait.' "'I should like that,' assented the girl decidedly. "'Kirkwood nodded his approval.' opened the door and jumped out to assist her, then picked up the bag and followed the pair, Brentwick leading the way with Dorothy on his arm. At the doorway of the Crown and Mitre, Charles met them evidently seriously disturbed. "'No petrol to be had here, sir,' he announced reluctantly. "'But the landlord will send to the next inn, a mile up the road, for some. You will have to be patient, I'm afraid, sir.' "'Very well. Get someone to help you push the car in from the road,' ordered Brentwick. "'We will be waiting in one of the private parlors.' "'Yes, sir. Thank you, sir.' The mechanician touched the visor of his cap and hurried off. "'Come, Kirkwood.' Gently, Brentwick drew the girl in with him. Kirkwood lingered momentarily on the doorstep, to listen acutely, but the wind was blowing into that quarter whence they had come, and he could hear naught save the sawing of the trees, together with an occasional burst of rude rustic laughter from the tap-room. Lifting his shoulders in dumb dismay, and endeavoring to compose his features, he entered the tavern. End of chapter 19, part 1 Recording by William Tomko.